Hi, this is Rebecca Bingham, Parker's cousin. Today on It's Been a Minute, Beyonce is back and it's time to dance. Plus, a new comedy sketch finds humor in social performance. All right, here's the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm B.A. Parker, and my guests Josh Gwynn and I are riding high this week. Hi. Hi, Josh. How's it going? <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. I mean, I'm even better now because Beyonce dropped a new song this week. Ring the alarm. Calling all of the beehive. Get in formation. When was the last Beyonce, Beyonce? 2016, Josh. Has it really been that long? Lemonade came out when Obama was still president. Yikes. Josh is an audio producer and host of the podcast Back Issue. And when Beyonce dropped her new track, Break My Soul, they and I both blew up our Twitter feeds freaking out over how good it was. I love the fact that She is the catalyst for escapism, right, by directly interacting with the thing that we all need mental and physical escape from, the pandemic, right? It's like she looked outside and looked at her watch and was like, it's 1235. Like, how do my people feel at this exact moment right now? And everybody said, tired, (laughs) burnt out, (laughs) exhausted. Like, I just, when this song came out, all of my group chat, and I mean, if Beyonce had, like, remember that time that Beyonce, like, told us all to go watch Good Morning America, and we were like, oh, it's new music, and she was like, I'm vegan. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone tried to be like, cute and be vegan exactly, for two weeks, exactly. and then realized that they liked cheeseburgers. Yeah. Exactly. I Like, my group chats would blow up if Beyonce did anything, but this was, like, the first time that my group chats blew up, and everyone was like... Is Beyonce in my Google Docs? Can she see my two weeks notice that I've been drafting for the last two months? Um, How does she know exactly what I'm feeling? Josh is a Beyonce fan, but they're also an expert on the history of house music, which is relevant here because this new Beyonce track is dripping with influence from house music. And coincidentally, so is the new Drake album called Honestly Nevermind. But here's the thing. Beyonce and Drake are cisgendered straight people, and house music comes from specifically Black and Latino queer spaces. Today, Josh and I are exploring those roots and asking what it means for these huge pop stars to borrow music from a community they don't necessarily belong to. I grew up in Baltimore in the 90s, and you couldn't miss house music. I remember classics like Black Boxes, Everybody, Everybody. Ooh, makes me want to dance. And CeCe Peniston's Finally. My mom just, like, felt the urge to sing Finally on the phone today. Mm. Like, that's how ubiquitous house music has been. And also because, I mean, I grew up in Baltimore in the 90s, so mm-hmm. Baltimore club music... Um, is a big genre, like even mm-hmm. to this day, like every Friday and Saturday night on 92Q, you got to listen to like <laughs> 90s club music. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a, a black space, it's a queer space. Mm. But I am curious of what the origins are overall for, for House. 
I think that there's three different things that you have to think about when you're thinking about like where house music comes from. Mm-hmm. First is like thinking about that time, like the late 70s, early 80s, you have like the death of disco. You have people who are really, really mm-hmm. angry <laughs> by the fact that like this art form that black and Latino and queer people have used to like as escapism. Um, has become so ubiquitous and so successful. So people are rolling over albums and they're talking about how much disco sucks. and um, Death to disco. Death to disco. And so House really is born from these ashes. And then secondly, you have this moment in time that's like really marked by like a big boom in music technology. Mm-hmm. Like DJs and producers have these new synthesizers and these new ways to sample sounds and these new ways to make drum patterns that have become a lot more accessible. And then thirdly, you have these innovators specifically in Chicago, like DJ Ron Hardy and DJ Frankie Knuckles that were there and they brought their sensibilities from being a part of the queer community and hanging out in these drag scenes to the music that they were making. And Uh I mean, this is music that like people were dancing to in clubs and also dancing to while really bad things were happening, right? <laughs> like, like the late seventies, like through the eighties. Um, I mean, can you think of anything that happened to the queer community in the eighties? I um, can that think make of it... a, a few things. <laughs> yeah. So, like, this is music that is is escapism. It's music that allows you a place to live when outside feels like too much. I mean, you've already answered this a bit now, but like how how has house music become such a beloved and necessary part of queer communities of color? I think because it's seen communities through some of the hardest times. Like when you think about like the 80s and the AIDS crisis and people literally like falling dead around you, like... And Mm. you don't know what it is. You don't know why it is. You have a government that won't even say its name, right? Like, um, Mm. sounds familiar. And you have these people around you that you love and, and they're disappearing and they're, they're, they're dying. And you also are just trying to, to make it to the next day. Like you're like, uh, there's a lot of like, you know, economic, sort of stratification that's happening in the 80s that 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 people are trying to to survive through um which also feels very reminiscent of now um Mm -hmm. and so when you're working your nine to five like beyonce says and you are tired because they're working you so hard all you want to do is like go hang out in a place where you feel affirmed where you feel like everyone knows everyone sees you for who you are and that's fine and it's great and it's celebrated and you can dance until you are exhausted the first song i think about when i think of house music is a song called follow me mm. by like alias mhm because it's still a song again in baltimore it is played all the time you see all the old heads doing hand dances to it and just spinning mm-hmm. each other around. Mm-hmm. And if so, when I think of house music, I get like this warm feeling in my tummy because I'm like, it mm-hmm. feels it feels nice. And I am curious because there is this. Um, it seems to be like a resurgence of house music, particularly in the mainstream, because right before 
Beyonce's Break My Soul came out a few days before, uh, Drake's new album came out. Honestly, came never out. mind. Yeah. Honestly, never mind. How do you feel about the title? <laughs> I mean, it's... Don't manifest that over your art? Yes, and not yeah, over something yeah. that's supposed to have like house music on it, but you know, that's neither here nor there. But okay, this is my question, because mm-hmm. from my side of the table... Drake's album doesn't totally feel like house because it still feels like Drake and his feelings and he just he just found mm. a new um lily pad to jump on from you know from like the, the, the Caribbean music he was listening to from the other people I mean I always think of Drake as the Carmen San Diego of the black diaspora Listen. like I always think of him as going to the different places and the different islands and the different clubs and the different subcultures and being like I like that and <laughs> you know putting together a team and being like how do we how do we build this out you know you know I gotta bring the G block you know I gotta bring the D block cause you know how sticky it get All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I got to push back because there's a big elephant in the room. Are Beyonce and Drake appropriating? You'll be surprised by the answer. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. When you plan your celebration of life in advance, it becomes a gift from you to your family because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. With Dignity Memorial Providers, you can pre-plan every detail to give your family and yourself valuable peace of mind, knowing that everything will be taken care of with professionalism, compassion, and attention to detail that is second to none. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. There are many ways for members of the LGBTQ community to build a family. Sometimes it's an adoption story, a surrogate story, or something completely different. But no matter how that story unfolds, Mass Mutual is here to help you achieve your family dreams. Contact a financial professional and start planning for your family your way today. Mass Mutual. Okay, this is my question when it comes to superstars like Beyonce and like Drake, who are still, you know cishet superstars um mm-hmm. that are um leaning into a genre that is so undeniably uh queer and bring it into the mainstream would it be considered appropriative mm-hmm. um or do we just leap over that and just like enjoy the vibes <laughs> am i overthinking it? no i don't think you're overthinking it it's something that i think about a lot But I also think that with Beyonce, it functions in a different way because of who her audience is. Mm. Like, I remember when Check Up On It from the Pink Panther soundtrack came out. And I remember when she says, like, in one of the verses, she goes, you think that I'm teasing, but I ain't got no reason. I sure that I can please you. But first, I gotta read you. And I was like read you like <laughs> I, the only people that i ever heard in my life use that word were queer people um talking about like you know the moment where you have to tell somebody about themselves where you have to like get somebody together and you you read them you and that know? was 17 years ago so long ago like then i remember in formation 
that was the first time that I feel like she worked with Big Frida. And a lot of people were talking about how it was a, like a reclamation of her Southern heritage and her heritage as like, you know, someone from Houston and bounce music mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But like the queer aspect was never um, lost on me. And speaking of Big Frida, like Big Frida is someone who's worked with both of these people. She worked with Drake on Nice For What. She worked with Beyonce on formation like i said and so i guess when i'm when you're bringing up questions around appropriation my hope for this new era is that we don't have like a repeat of what happened last time when she when big frida who you know is this huge representative kind of stand in artist for when people think of mm-hmm. bounce music and is has like a very like non-binary presentation and is always wearing um, the best hair, the best bundles, the best fashion. Um, that when um, but when you looked at those videos, nice for what and formation, Big Frida mm-hmm. wasn't there, right? Like you, it felt like the music just wanted her voice, just wanted what she stood for, but like not the totality of her. And so I'm hoping that in this new v- song, um, break my soul, that Big Frida is all up in the video. Because it reminds me of another time in uh, another time in which house music was making like, you know, was super ubiquitous um, when like the time that you referenced Mm -hmm. in the early 90s, like the CNC music Mm. factories. And you had you have Martha Walsh, right, who is the voice like the voice comes up, the queen she will make the queen. any room shake with that voice shake and she comes up in a group called two tons of fun um because they're two big girls and mm-hmm. they turn their name into the weather girls and they come out with it's raining men and she is singing these anthemic hooks on these house numbers that are they are the number like these hooks are the number right and like gonna make you sweat like i got the power and they refused to put her in the music videos because her body and her body image didn't fit the aesthetic that they were um they were interested in and so like as we dip back into this discourse about the discourse about house music Mm -hmm. i hope we do it right this time and queer people are like, you know, a little bit more centered in mm-hmm. the way that the music looks. And I'm kind of heartened uh, because Kay Trinata, like, is this great DJ producer who makes great house music. And he was the first Black person, the first queer person to ever win a Grammy for Best Dance slash Electronic Album. In 2021, last year, that's wild (laughs) right like imagine like for 15 years every hip-hop record went to like someone that wasn't you know Uh, i mean not far off not far off but (laughs) that is that's wild to me when you think about the foundation with which electronic dance music stands right it is so black it is so queer and for for that legacy to kind of be diluted that's also a fear that i have again with house music reaching the mainstream is that we forget the origins and then we get after k trinata another like 15 16 years of um, non-black non-queer people winning the grammy 
right. because we don't remember the origins of the music. Yeah, and I think it's kind of something that's inevitable when you have someone who has the type of visibility and positionality within the culture that Beyonce mm-hmm. has. I think, though, it kind of reminded me of like your question earlier around like how is what Drake is doing different from what Beyonce is doing, mm-hmm. and one of the things when you look at their discographies and you look at like their their the music that they've come out with. It does feel like Drake's at Costco and he's getting free samples Um, and he's just sampling different things and he likes different things. And I mean, whether that's good or a good thing or a bad thing, like that's up to you. But like that does feel like what he's doing with Beyonce, though, it has always felt like it feels a lot more authentic when Beyonce is experimenting with a genre because she's doing it to figure out who she is and what who her people are and how her family fits into that. And that just feels better. I understand. Okay. I'm going to push back just a little. Mm-hmm. Again, please don't cancel me. I'm, I'm a <laughs> young woman trying to pay her bills. But, <laughs> but there's also been a discussion because this is June. This is pride month. This like these having yeah. both of these, like these house oriented works Feels like placation. Feels like they're just trying to opportunistic, being opportunistic and trying to profit off of like the queer community because this is the month where every corporation does so anyway. Hi, gay. (laughs) (laughs) How do you overcome that argument? Because I can see where there, where like some of these that argument is coming from. Mm -hmm. But I also. A part of me is like, but come on, it's Beyonce. It just feels like an authenticity question. If, like, Lady Gaga is like, you know, I, like, want to put out a Pride mix for this thing. It's part of it, her brand. I mean, that's the, like, you know, capitalistic way to say it. It's I'm part sorry. of her brand. I'm sorry. <laughs> but she is always like, this is for the girls and for the gays. Yeah, yeah and the theys. And... It feels authentic. It feels real. And so, like, I am not at a place where I'm going to be like, you know, like, unless you are a queer person, you cannot touch house music. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's something that I would would say. But I would say that if you are not someone who understands the origins of this music and understands who made this music and understands the the situation in which it came to be and who continues the traditions of this music and whose ears perk up when they hear this music referenced and why, then don't touch it. Josh, thank you so much for talking to me and I'm going to bother you when the album, when Beyonce's album comes out. Oh, I'm here. Like, (laughs) I'm down. That was Josh Gwynn, host and producer of the podcast Back Issue. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, Kate Berlant and John Early are going to make you laugh your butt off with their new sketch special. When I spoke with my next guest, they could not stop praising each other. In fact, when they met doing a stand-up show in New York, they say they just knew they'd do great things together. She's one of our greatest living improvisers, if not the greatest. John's one of the finest comedic voices we have and that we'll ever have. It was just instant. It was true love. It was. That's John Early and Kate Berland. 
the comedians, actors, and the co-executive producers of a new sketch comedy special on Peacock called Would It Kill You to Laugh? And as much as they appreciate each other off screen, part of what makes the special so funny is that they act like they can't stand each other. It is sort of contained around this theme of imagining a world where John and I are the most famous, lauded comedians in the history of entertainment. We're globally renowned and we suffered a very public falling out. And this special is this reunion. I love the way you're, the shading, and you finally found a foundation that matches. You know, it's so funny. Obviously, I haven't seen you yeah. in years. Yeah, I know, years. Um, you know, I haven't years. seen you in person. Yeah, <laughs> years. Um, I haven't seen you in person, but I also haven't seen you just kind of reflected anywhere in the culture. So what have, what have you been up to? But there are so many other great self-contained sketches in the special, too. I talked to John and Kate about their favorite jokes and some of the psychology behind them. Enjoy. There's one bit that I've been thinking about for the past week, and I just need to know how you came up with it because I've been telling my friends about it so that they can, when they watch the special, just be prepared for it. <laughs> um, so there's like this ongoing bit where you both play two people out to dinner and there's like a little tensions between the characters as they're, as they're paying. And like um, in one sketch, the, the friend is being shady and about never paying the bill. And another Kate, you're like, you're in boy drag and it's dude's lunch hour. And one of you will take a little pot, a form of payment. One of you will take a little pot and melt some caramel in it and drizzle it over the check. Oh, uh, do you take hot caramel? Of course, yeah. Of course. Thank you. He insisted. I surrender. I insist. I just need to know where that idea came from because I will mention it during my dinner tonight. Thank God. God. I mean, it's so funny hearing people describe it. I know, I love it. It's like very, it's it's wild to hear it in plain language because that is in fact what happens. It's, <laughs> that is really just an inside joke. That's like a joke that John and I have been doing for a million years, which is just imagining a world where caramel is money and you're paying at the end of a bill with caramel. Like hot and caramel. So, with hot caramel. It, it, it sounds really nice in the mouth too, going, do you take hot caramel? Like you really have to wrap your mouth around the two words. And it makes us laugh. You know, it's a, it's a deep, deep cut for the friendship. and we, But we thought for the special it would be a great way for us to kind of do sketches where we get to play with, like, anxieties around paying yes. the bill. You know, like like social performance around paying the bill. And, and also, Kate and I just love any sort of sketch that takes place in a restaurant and all the kind of um, social anxiety that comes up in that scenario. But also as we were, like, shooting it. I mean, I don't think it was until we really shot that, that we were like, oh, this is also maybe a subconsciously trying to address, like, cryptocurrency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. John, you give real, when you say caramel, you have real Jeff Daniels energy. Ooh, well, wow, I look like him too, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. I do look like Jeff Daniels, and, like, over the airwaves, you give, like, real Jeff Daniels. Oh, my God. Well, caramel, I think, is Wild. how Southerners say it, right? Caramel, caramel. <laughs> Oh, gosh. But what I really like about your special is, like, almost every sketch centers on uncomfortable or passive interactions or what you just said of, like, social performance between characters, but always with this absurdist edge. And what is interesting or funny for you both about these kind of interactions between people? I think we're always interested in characters who are 
kind of can't hide their true emotions, but are trying to, and sort of when that social performance fails, when people are trying to be polite or trying to connect, but in fact can't help but show their hostility or fear (laughs) or competitive energy. So that's something that we're, we always return to. (laughs) Yeah. Kate and I, you know, though, you know, we can write a joke or two. I think we're not very like our first, I think entry point into comedy is more just like psychological dynamics. Yes. I really don't want to use the word toxic because they're not all toxic. Some of them I think are very tender, (laughs) but, um, yeah, just complex, complicated yeah. dynamics between yeah. two people. <laughs> Your comedy also feels very generational and specific. There is a truth in your comedy about the worst, most shallow iterations of white millennials. And that's something you've done in your other work, too, like Search Party, a TV dramedy you were both in. Mm-hmm. What draws you to that? Or what kinds of people or situations have inspired your characters? Well... I I think that we are always just coming from a very instinctive place of just what makes us laugh. Like this special in particular, we were really trying to just kind of choose seven or eight dynamics or, you know, premises that really just made us laugh, you know. And it's only later when we're like editing and watching things that we, you know, realize that we're, of course people existing in a in a specific time you know we absorb the zeitgeist and can't help but kind of play it back a little bit um mm-hmm. so it really feels the commentary is always like incidental to us like things a lot of the stuff we do gets described as like satire or social commentary and to us it's literally just like things that are making us like scream laugh at dinner it's just things that make you laugh yeah yeah truly. yeah yeah i love satire as well I think it's just never what what we think we're doing, <laughs> like an, like yeah. a kind of an overt attempt at sapphire at sapphire at satire. Oh, interesting, the sapphic. the sapphic quality of my work. <laughs> but there is, yeah, it, it's a thing of kind of like you know if you go into something going I'm going to make a comment on this, it so often fails. Mm-hmm. Like I think like stuff that does that kind of has this like stench of that attempt on it. Um, if I may boldly separate our work from that. Yeah, like Book Club, I feel like is a good example. Like to us, that felt like a kind of vaudevillian premise. You know, like we've been kind of trapped, all trapped in a world where everyone's just always trying to sound smart on Twitter. You know, so I think it ended up feeling, there there are moments in that sketch that feel, I think, like commentary that I think both of us are kind of delighted by actually, but like it wasn't intentional. Exactly, exactly. What did you think of the book? Where were you guys when you finished it? I'll start. Um, I remember being in my bedroom and getting to the end and going, (sighs) I felt like for me, the book was so so like big. I kind of had this experience like kind of being like, I'm so little with the book, you know, kind of like almost like. I love that sketch because I years ago had learned a trick of how to make it through a book club without having ever read the book. What is it? You just learn the protagonist's name (laughs) and just be like, their journey really, I love what they were trying to navigate. Totally, (laughs) totally. Yeah. And then that's it. Like Paul, like the way that Paul navigated such um, heartfelt hurdles Totally. I, really, that's really, really got to me. That's really funny. Cyrus Dunham, who's in that sketch, who he's so good in it. And, you know, he's like an accomplished writer and is in grad school. And he was saying the same thing about it was like bringing up being in those academic environments when you haven't read it and kind of having oh, to yeah. like skirt 
by like you know it's just this like language which is definitely something i've done as well and as john said like everyone's kind of doing like everyone learns like four words no actual nuance or understanding but just kind of pure rhetoric all rhetoric all performance yeah yeah Yeah. and hopefully if anything it shows the sketch shows the um the humanity behind that the desperation behind that totally I do think those those people, those versions of you and me are very kind of sweet and innocent. Yes, yes. They were like, it came, like, you, you came into it, like, so just, like, innocently. And you know what? Like, the, the room turned on you. It was not your fault. Thank you. Thank you for once. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is a question for both of you. We'll start with John. I want to hear your favorite character of Kate's from the special. Oh. And then Kate, what is your fate? What was the same to you about John? I really particularly am just kind of blown away by um, Kate as the beaver mom. Yes. <laughs> uh, it just really rocks me to see like, I mean, cause it's the polar opposite of what we're talking about. Like it's not a kind of coastal elite millennial using kind of um, like academic language. It's, middle America airport (laughs) like mom, you know, who's just like exhausted and, you know, was trying for once not to think about money until like a wealthier couple that always makes her feel awful, like shows up, you know, like there's just something extremely uh, universal and like beautiful about the tenderness. Like there's a moment in that sketch where, you know, Kate like really – takes this big swing and tries to show off about how we like just joined this very kind of exclusive concierge, like skip the line service. And then, and then the other couple is like talking about how that's like a, Oh, haven't you heard? It's like a scam, you know. You can bypass the whole line Breeze and kind of get there. The the name. Breeze, it's not, it's not cheap, but it's worth kind of the peace of mind. We love it. Yeah. You've not read the article about Breezer? You didn't give him your credit card, did you? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, you're going to probably have your identity stolen. You're no, kidding. No. no, 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 you do not want to get And Kate's, like, eyes drop to the ground, and she just looks, like, humiliated and, and, and so sad. And it really, every time, that, that moment really breaks my heart. Let the compliment flow over you really quickly. Like, just let that, let that happen. I'm absorbing it. I've absorbed it. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. Like, I wanted, they were describing that there's, like, an actual beaver who is, that's a mom. There's, I mean, she is a beaver in the sketch. I, to be fair, I just got this note from my producer, and it just made me giggle. Like, yeah, we have to explain to the NPR listeners that, yeah, Kate plays a, a, and a beaver. John and I are beavers with our son at an airport. Everyone else is human. I, yeah okay there we go it's not like some kind of like hyperbole or anything. yeah yeah all right no no we truly are beavers we are beavers yes. <laughs> all right. uh kate same for you um well it very it really is difficult because john is so such an astonishing talent and to act across from him is, is shocking um but i really really love john playing the girl in one of the hot caramel bits yes i left my hot plate at home i know exactly where it is it's in like the front hallway i can see it like in my mind's eye like it's literally on that little end table we have next to the front it's door it's okay i can get it i leave it there so that oh thank you it's not a problem i'm used to it what do you what do you mean by that that just destroyed me when we were shooting it but then also watching it and just the the nuance of his performance and the the transparent like this this the embarrassment on her on her face 
Um, so to let everyone know, she's, you know, she's avoiding paying the bill. And this is clearly something that's happened in their dynamic over and over again. And her attempt to get out of that uncomfortable moment by throwing to some kind of personal tragedy, um, (laughs) it makes me laugh. I think it's so funny, but also just John's sensitivity and the way he communicates so much just in his eyes is really beautiful to me. That's lovely. Well, I'm just going to absorb it. Um, <laughs> Let it flow over I'm, you. I'm going to need a little more time. With that, Kate Berlant and John Early, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks again to Kate Berlant and John Early. Their sketch special is Would It Kill You to Laugh? and is out now on Peacock. All right. This episode was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Ahianeta Argan. Our editors are Jessica Mendoza and Quinn O'Toole. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grunman. All right, until next time, thanks for listening. I'm B.A. Parker. We'll talk soon. <laughs>